All right. Hey, welcome, everybody. How you guys doing this morning? Or tonight or wherever you are watching us online, whenever it is, um, we're glad that you're here. Glad to have you join us. I love, I love knowing that people online all over the country and really all over the world are joining us, whether they join us at you know, midnight tonight from their bedroom and they're watching it or they're live now. I love knowing that. It's one of the great things through COVID. We all look at it as this huge downer, and it is, but God promises that he's going to use everything for the good of those who are called according to his purpose, and our purpose is to share the gospel of Christ, and he's using this to open up new avenues. We have people all over the world who are checking in and catching the messages of the gospel, not just our church, but all over, and it's one great side effect that's been coming through this. So I, for one, am not thankful for what's happening all related to COVID, but I am super thankful for the ways that God is faithful and he's using it to get his message out there. So uh, glad that you guys are here. I love that, but I also, even more than that, like Pastor Gabe said, I love seeing live faces in the building here. You guys, thank you. It means a lot to me that you gave the effort and the time and kind of went out there to come and just join us live. We have room. If you're watching at home wondering if there's still room, yes. Come on in. We can get you in here. We love to have fellowship in person. So let's get right into the message. We are teaching our way through the book of Job. The series is called Blameless, a study in the life of Job, and there's a lot to learn here. The biggest thing people ask, you know, first of all, the, the assumption about the book of Job is that it's just, it's a downer. It's about pain and suffering and patience and all those things that none of us really wants. When we need it, we want patience. But all the rest of the time, it's like, I'd rather not have to have patience. I want what I want when I want it. But Job teaches us about those things, and it's not just a book about pain and suffering and and terrible things that happen in the world. It's really an inspiring book because we know that trouble will always be there. It's just a part of the human condition. There's always going to be trouble. Things are always going to be happening in the world. All up until Jesus returns, there's going to be stuff going on, and we have to know how to deal with it. So what we see in the book of Job is his response and how he deals with the turmoil and the pain. His pain is very real. It's not, it's not made up. It's not exaggerated. He's going through terrible things in his life, and he struggles to hold on to faith. He struggles to hold on to his trust in God. He struggles to know what's truth compared to what he sees, to what he thought he knew. He has to try and reconcile that every day in light of the extreme pain that he's going through. And there's nothing like extreme pain, whether it's physical pain, emotional pain, whatever's happening, or even the pain in loved ones around you. There's nothing like those things to start making you question what you thought you knew. Why is God allowing this to happen is the big question that comes out of all this. That really is the focus of the whole book of Job. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Why does he allow pain and suffering? And so really, that is the subtext. That's the point of the book. And if the point of the book of Job is a question, how many of you know it's probably not going to get answered in one sentence or in one paragraph? It's meant to make you think. It's meant to make you jump into it and really look at God's heart behind it. And sometimes it's really obvious. Sometimes you have to dig a little bit more. So let's get into where we are. Last week, um, we were going through Eliphaz, one of Job's good friends, And his lecture, if you will, no other way to really phrase it than a lecture that he's giving to Job about what he's going through. Now, remember, if we back up even further, Job had lost his family. He'd lost all of his children to a horrible accident. He had lost many, many of his servants. He had lost his livelihood in terms of his livestock, just one disaster after another hitting him. And then finally, it hits his body sickness and boils and just intense itching and pain that he's going through, and he's left in this horribly low point in his life. And it makes him vulnerable. When we're all at our lowest point, that is when we are the most vulnerable. And so what we see here is some very well-meaning, 
good friends, three friends, travel from all over, and they come, and they're going to sit down with Job, and they're just going to be with him. And it starts out for the first full week, they just sit in silence with Job, just being there for him, just showing support and how much they care about him. And had it stopped right there, things would have been great. We wouldn't have had much of a book to talk about. It's how things progress from there that really is what we're going to be digging into. Job finally has had enough of the silence, and he just bleh, just vomits out all of this, all of his pain and anguish and questions and, and confusion and, and, and all this stuff. It just all just comes out all at once. The problem with that is that his response to all of that, when he finally does speak, gives his friends their cues on how to approach him. If he would have come out and just said, oh, I know this is terrible, but God is good and I trust in him and he is righteous and he is solid. If he just would have had that kind of an attitude, his friends would have taken that cue and it might have been different. But when he just has this outburst in pain, they're watching him and they go, okay, now we have our opening. Here's somebody that needs the wisdom I can offer. Here's somebody I can fix. And from their viewpoint, they have to fix him. They have to find what's causing this in his life, and they have to fix him. Because if they can't, they got to look at themselves. Scripture says that Job is an upright man. He's blameless. They knew that. That's why they were good friends of his. They come in to visit him because he's such a good guy. And yet this is happening to him. So if they can't dig deep enough, poke and prod and unturn, you know, overturn rocks and whatever they can do, to find whatever this hidden darkness is in his life, if they can't find that, they got a problem. They have to start questioning a lot of things, and it really is going to come back to them. And no one likes that. So we see, as we progress through this book, we're going to see that although they start out somewhat respectful, they get more and more desperate. We have to find an answer for this. They can't just leave it as... We don't know and we can't understand. They have to find a reason. This is where we are now. So last week, Eliphaz was just, was just dumping, dumping facts out. Now, his facts, for the most part, were not wrong, but they were just cold, hard facts. They really did not have the application that made it into truth. And here's what you need for truth. You need wisdom. You need context. You need other things to go along with your fact before they become truth. Because you can take a fact and you can make it say pretty much whatever you want. You need to apply those other things. And this is the problem that they're having. They're having a problem applying these other things because they're not God. And it doesn't make sense. What they're seeing doesn't line up with what they thought they knew they're having a hard time reconciling those things. So let's get into it and find out. Again, Eliphaz is correct from a factual standpoint, but he's missing. He's missing a big part of the picture, and this is what's causing his problems. In order for fact to become truth, you have to have wisdom and understanding to go along with it. And this week, what we see here is that there's one more element that you have to add to your wisdom and to your understanding before a fact can become truth. Anybody know what that other thing is? We're going to talk about that. I'll reveal it at the end, but it's missing throughout much of this, and I hope it's going to become obvious to you. Why is being a Christian so much harder than just being a regular part of the world? Why is being a citizen of heaven so much harder? Jesus said it. He said, I came to fulfill the law not to abolish it. So all of the law that they've always had, he didn't come to abolish that. He came to fulfill it. And fulfill it means, okay, I know what the letter of law says, but what's in your heart? So he said it's not enough to just do what the law says. How much easier would it be if it just do this, do this, do this, do this? It's a whole lot easier, but Jesus said, okay, it's one thing to do all that, and that's great, but what's in your heart? So doing even the right things with the wrong heart is not what Jesus teaches us. 
And it's a higher level of accountability that Christians are held to. If you say that you're a citizen of the world, then you don't have that level of accountability. But when you want to be a follower of Christ, when you want to be a citizen of heaven, now you have taken on that responsibility to be held to a higher level. And it's not just enough to spout facts and use them as a tool to bludgeon other people. You have to apply something else. Context is the start of it, but there's much more. Let's get into it. So Eliphaz had just finished now where we ended up last week. Eliphaz had finished up telling Job about this vision that he had. Okay, remember that? He's dispensing all this wisdom, and Job is somewhat skeptical about this wisdom that Eliphaz is spouting. So Eliphaz says, okay, it's not just me saying this. I heard it from God. He pulls that God card and says, if you, tr- if you don't believe in me, I heard it from God. And he goes on and on explaining the things that he got in this vision from God. So he's pulling that, that card and he's saying, it's, it's what I would do. And not only that, but it's what God told me. It's kind of a prideful place for him to be in because he wasn't sure whether he heard from God. He made the assumption that it was God talking to him or an angel of the Lord, but he didn't know for sure. But he's making this leap, saying it's what I would do. It's really a prideful place that he's coming at that. And how we're going to find out through the message today, if you're filtering what you're saying from a prideful place, love cannot show through. Pride and love do not coexist in the same sentence. And it's really hard for them to coexist in the same heart. So Eliphaz talks to Job in this really just kind of a matter-of-fact attitude, just sort of stating the facts, and it betrays the fact that he has never experienced pain and suffering to this level before, ever. Now, we know from all the things that Job went through, thank the Lord that most of us have maybe gone through small aspects of it, but I don't think many of us have ever approached the level of suffering that Job goes through. But the kind of the the coldness that Eliphaz just starts spouting his version of facts just betrays the fact that he's never experienced that depth of suffering. In other words, facts without wisdom or understanding. So let's get into the scriptures. Job 5.1, first one we have on screen. Call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? He's just simply saying, hey, I heard from God. Who are you hearing from? God told me all this wisdom. Who are you going to? Try it now. Call out. Whoever it is that you call out to, do it right now. If you can. It's kind of the subtext there. If you can, call out to them. Because I've heard. Now, though, the next statement that Eliphaz makes, next couple verses here, is one of the most, one of the least loving and most prideful, hurtful statements that he makes in this whole time. Let's look at it. Job 5, verses 2 through 4. For anger slays the foolish man, and jealousy kills the simple. I have seen the foolish taking root, and I have cursed his abode immediately. His sons are far from safety. They are even oppressed in the gate, and there is no deliverer. Now, if you just read that through, you're like, okay, how is that super hurtful? Let's look at it in the context he's talking about. First of all, he's saying, I heard from God. I know, and I'll tell you the truth. And then he goes to take this cold-blooded swipe at Job's kids. Remember, Job had lost 10 children. And who knows how many grandchildren and, and on down the line. But he had lost all that. And here, Eliphaz is basically, he's calling them simple. He's calling them foolish saying, I cursed his abode immediately. He's taking on this role of God, saying, even I have seen the foolish and the simple, and I've cursed their home. Who is he to curse anybody's home? And he's pointing a finger directly at Job and his kids. This idea, oppressed, they are even oppressed in the gate. That word oppressed in a lot of translations translates as the same Hebrew word, and it's crushed. So a lot of translations will say they are even crushed in the gate. The gate is a place that traditionally in, those, in that time, at the gate entering your town, whether it was big enough to have a formal gate or it was just kind of the, where the path came into your town, 
That's where you would gather together with friends or anybody that you had a dispute with, and that's where you would settle things. It was a place of judgment. You'd go to the gate. Everybody would gather there, and you would, you would hash it out, do whatever you had to do. You would come to it. It's a place of judgment. And he's saying that your children were crushed in that place of judgment. He's very clearly just saying, your kids had sin. Your children were sinful. They were, doing, they were not living right, and that's why they were crushed. And then he goes on to say, and there is no deliverer. That is another swipe directly at Job. We know that Job would get up constantly and he would intercede and pray on his kids' behalf for sins that he didn't even know if they did. He would just say, just in case they misspoke, just in case they sinned somehow, I'm going to intercede for them. I'm going to offer sacrifice. And Eliphaz is going, and no one, no one pled their case. They're guilty and they were crushed. What a cold thing to say to a friend. Eliphaz is doing everything but placing himself exactly on a plane with God. He is very pridefully elevating what he thinks he sees along with what God only can know. Even I have cursed the, ho- the home of a foolish man. God certainly won't save them. Now he goes on even further, doubling down to claim what only God can know. Job 5, verse 6. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Translation, this didn't just happen for no reason. This came from somewhere. And the sooner you fess up and admit where it came from, flip over that rock and let us see the dirt that's down there, that thing you're trying to hide, the sooner you do that, the more this, the quicker this will be over. He's claiming again, it's what only God can know. And what he knows and what he's heard and what he's seen is that Job is an upright guy. But that doesn't jive with what he's seeing happen to Job. And he has to find a reason. And that reason has to be sin and darkness. And so whether he knows it or not, he's just going to assume it's there and point it out. He's pointing out sin that he has no way to know if it's there. In other words, stop claiming innocence and just admit what you've done. He's desperate at this point to get Job to admit something. Again, and I'll say it several times, if he can't get Job to go, okay, okay, it's this one time or this one thing or I'm having an affair, whatever it is, that he can point to and say, there it is. That's the sin. And I would never do that. Whew. Glad we got that out of the way because now I can feel righteous and I can sleep at night, more importantly, without having to rethink my entire theology. Nobody wants to do that, least of all these guys, and so they're desperate to find something. But he's kind of saying, if you won't do it for yourself, do it for those around you. Remember Job's wife? Job's wife was suffering too. Now she's kind of faded into the background here, but think she's lost her kids She's lost her livelihood as well. Her husband is in pain and anguish. And so she's just like, what what do I do? What can I do? So she's in a place too. And they're kind of saying like, hey, think outside of yourself. They're telling Job, think outside of yourself and think of others first. Job 5, 7, for a man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. That sounds like a proverb, right? It's just, it's just one of those things like, yeah, man is born for trouble. Since the beginning of time, since, since Adam and Eve, man has been born for trouble. And it's always going to be that way. Our human condition on earth is that man is born for trouble just as surely as sparks fly upward. What do sparks do? They fly up. It's a fact. He could have said just as surely as birds sing or flowers bloom or the sun comes up. He's just saying, this happens. It's the human condition. Let me talk about this a little bit deeper. That word sparks um, translates as a Hebrew word, reshef. And reshef, depending on where you see it, and remember, Job is written in an old, old, old form of Hebrew, so it's, it's a little bit sketchy where it comes from. It can mean burning coals. It can mean um, lightning bolts. It can even mean plague and pestilence, depending on where you see it. You see it in Deuteronomy, you see it in Psalms and other Old Testament scriptures, and it translates various ways. 
Most translations translate that word as sparks because to take it literally, it means the sons of coals. So the sons of burning coal, which if you think of a burning coal, you'd see sparks flying off and they kind of look like offspring, right? So that's where the idea of sparks comes from. And it sounds like just straight wisdom, like it just just be a proverb. But there's more depth to it than that in a couple of ways. What happens when sparks fly around randomly? Given our time and our season in Colorado here, it doesn't take a giant leap. It causes destruction. It causes wildfire. One tiny loose spark randomly can cause so much destruction and devastation. And what he's saying here is that your sin in the terms of these sparks flying around, your troubles and sin are causing problems far beyond just you. They're causing everyone around you to suffer. He's probably even thinking of himself. I left my business in my home, traveled all this way to see you because you're in trouble, and the sooner you fess up, the more I can just, the quicker I can just go back home. He's saying these troubles that you're causing, this sparks, they're causing destruction. Again, if you won't think of yourself, think of the others around you. A note for my Bible nerds out there, if you're looking, the word reshef is actually an ancient, ancient word. Even before this, it's about 5,000 years old or so, they trace the origin to this, to ancient Syria, ancient Egypt, uh, Egypt, and some of the other regions. Reshef was a god, a small g god, um, associated with pestilence and, and famine and war. Always Reshef was a, was a negative thing, associated with calamity and disaster. So some scholars will, will dig into that, the sons of Reshef. Meaning, okay, Reshef is this god of calamity. Who are his sons? I think that that's one of those things where we're kind of digging a little farther than we need to. Um, although it's certainly a valid study if, if you like studying that kind of thing. But really, I think it just points to the sons of burning coals, which are sparks in context. It's creating more trouble than just you. It's causing a bigger problem. Job 5.8, Eliphaz goes on to say this. As for me, I would seek God, and I would place my cause before God. What's he insinuating right there when he says that? But as for me, I would seek God. The insinuation is, you're not. He's got no way to know if Job has been seeking God or not. Job's always been a righteous man. Job's always been blameless before God. And here, all of a sudden, he's just assuming, oh my gosh, Job's going to say, I hadn't thought of that. Thank you so much for telling me, my good friend. I'll seek God now because it's what you would do. It's such a prideful statement. Eliphaz, I'm clearly holier than you are. And here's what I would do. Anybody ever meet somebody like that? If it comes from a place of love and understanding, it can be very helpful to be reminded of the goodness of God. I've even said some of the best teaching out there is just reminding people of what they already know. But what's your motivation? Is it to show how much you know? Or is it to help point somebody to the truth? What's your motivation? Just as Jesus said, I came not just to fulfill the law, but there's a higher level. And it's that. I know what the law says, but what's your motivation behind it? Speaking even truth from the wrong motivation is not going to find a home. So a quick note to avoid being prideful, to avoid being sinful, even when you're speaking truth, okay? Wait until you're asked, for one. Wait until you're asked. Just like Job and his friends. They sat with him for as long as it took until he said something. Then that gave him an opening. But go back, check your scripture. Did Job ever ask? Did Job ever say, excuse me, what would you guys do? He never said that. Never asked the question. And when we give advice unsolicited, it's very, very difficult to have it not be prideful. We need to be careful. 
The easiest way to be careful is just don't do it unless you are asked. Eliphaz is basing his entire argument, everything he's saying is based on what he knows about God and that he says God is perfect and so if something's happening, it's because you caused it. Remember at the beginning, I talked about this term of theodicy. Theodicy is just how you reconcile in your heart the, the lens that you look at that question through whether or how bad things can happen to good people. Eliphaz looks at it, he's very cut and dry. God is good, God is perfect. If something bad happened to you, it's because you did something bad. End of story. There's no gray area for Eliphaz. That's exactly where he comes at it from. So he's taken a moment, and he decides that he just wants to remind Job of what he already knows. He starts quoting Job's own words back to him, starts quoting things that, that Job has already known and has always known. Again, is it an encouraging reminder, or are we just showing how much we know? And which one, here's a better question. When I read you this, what does it sound like Eliphaz is coming at this from? Job chapter 5, verses 9 through 12. I'll just read this to you. He's talking about God again. Remember, he said, and I would place my cause before God. Verse 9, who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. He gives rain on the earth, and he sends water on the fields, so that he sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the plotting of the shrewd, so their hands cannot attain success. So again, he's just reminding Job, here's how good God is. Job already knows this, but Eliphaz is just reminding him. And then verse 13, he captures the wise by their own shrewdness, and the advice of the cunning is quickly thwarted. So he's saying, you're smart, but you are not smart enough to outrun God. You are not smart enough to outthink or outscheme God. In fact, your own shrewdness is what's going to get you. Not super encouraging if you're Job. Think about that. By the way, Paul, much, much later, 2,000 years after this, the Apostle Paul is talking to the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth was they were wealthy, they were smart, they were educated, they were, they were all that in a bag of chips, except that's what they relied on. They were so reliant on who they were and their own strength and their own, um, their own ways to save them that Paul had to remind them that humility goes a long way too. 1 Corinthians 3.19, Paul says, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written... He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And he's directly lifting that from what is being talked about in Job here. You're, you're going to outthink yourself. You're going to trap yourself in your own cleverness. God will always, always consider that foolishness. You need to look at God first and foremost. He just continues to remind. And he keeps hammering away, continuing on that theme of God punishing the proud, he goes on, Job 5, 14 to 16. By day they meet with darkness and grope at noon as in the night. But he saves from the sword of their mouth and the poor from the hand of the mighty. So the helpless has hope and the unrighteous, and unrighteousness must, must shut its mouth. Sorry, it's a mouthful. But he's just going on and on and on to say your pride is what's causing you to be punished. When in fact it's Eliphaz who's exhibiting all the pride. James, who's the half-brother of Jesus, 2,000 years after all this, echoes this very same truth, but he puts it a little more succinctly. James 4, 6 says it like this, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's also repeated in Proverbs. The idea is repeated many, many times in Scripture that your pride is not going to get you anything. And pride comes in so many forms. Pride can come in education. Pride, in Eliphaz's case, he, for the most part, he's speaking fact. He's really not talking much about, in the way of blasphemy, he's speaking fact, but he's not including all the ingredients you need to make it truth. And he'll later again be charged with error by God for doing that. 
He's just pushing ahead, though. He won't stop. Job 5, 17. Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. He's basically telling Job, you ought to be happy. God is punishing you. God is reproving you. That's what that means, punishing you. So don't despise it. Be happy. If anybody ever comes and says, all the stuff you're going through, you should just be happy because that means God loves you. Is that helpful? Does anybody ever find that helpful? Anybody ever see that on a motivational poster? He's implying there's darkness in your heart, so check your heart. That's another one of those Christianese phrases, check your heart. Usually when somebody says that, my heart responds, punch him in the throat right now. <laughs> That's where my heart goes in that. I'm just admitting to you right now. It's not a helpful sentiment to have. The good news, though, as Eliphaz sees it, okay, the good news as Eliphaz sees it is that since God did this, he can just as quickly undo it if you're willing to repent and admit what you did. Again, just keeps hammering away. Admit it. Admit it, and we can all go home. Admit it, and this will all be over. He keeps saying that. Job 5.18 to 23. I'll read this to you. He inflicts pain and gives relief. He wounds, and his hands also heal. From six troubles he'll deliver you. Even in seven, evil will not touch you. In famine, he'll redeem you from death. In war, from the power of the sword. You'll be hidden from the scourge of the tongue, and you will not be afraid of violence when it comes. You will laugh at violence and famine. You will not be afraid of wild beasts. You'll be in league with stones of the field, and the beasts of the field will be at peace with you. What's he saying there? He's just repeating Job's words back to him in a different way. Remember at the beginning, what did Job say? The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. A total understanding that every good thing comes from God. And because those good things come from God in his timing and in his providence, they can just as quickly go away. Eliphaz is just repeating this back to him in reverse order. And Eliphaz is doing it to illustrate, okay, he gives pain, but he'll also give relief. You know how you get relief? You repent and admit what you've done. The problem is there's not that thing there. Repentance of your sin is your only path to salvation, according to what Eliphaz is teaching. You ever watch The Price is Right? Anybody ever? Or any kind of game shows? All this can be yours. Okay, doing my Vanna, Vanna White. All this can be yours. What do we have in store for the righteous winner? This is basically what he's saying. If you do this, then you will get this doesn't work that way, but Eliphaz doesn't see that, and Job is not grasping that either. This is why he's struggling so much. Chapter 5, verse 24 through 26. Here's what's in store for the righteous winner, according to Eliphaz. For you will know that your tent is secure, for you will visit your abode and fear no loss. You will also know that your descendants will be many, and your offspring as the grass of the earth. You will come to the grave full of vigor, and like the stacking of grain in its season. Meaning, he's just saying, you will live out long days. Your home will be safe and secure. You'll have many, many offspring. Now, he's already lost this. So Eliphaz is promising him that God's going to restore. It's not untrue, but Eliphaz has no way of knowing this. You'll come to the grave in full vigor, meaning you'll live long years and you'll be healthy right up until that time. And you'll be like stacking of grain in its season. It's just a picture of the harvest. Okay, you harvest the grain and you stack it up and you stand back and just go, what? What an abundance of provision we have. It's just he's pointing towards all these things and it's not wrong. It just lacks context and it lacks one other really important thing that we're about to get to. And in one final really prideful statement, Eliphaz proves, air quotes, that his advice is completely unimpeachable. In other words, if you don't believe me, okay, Job 5.27, he says this, Behold this, we have investigated it, and so it is. Hear it and know for yourself. Okay, It's true. I've investigated it. It's true. So if you hear it, you'll know. What a prideful thing to say to your good friend. <laughs> 
The Bible speaks extensively to attitudes like that that Eliphaz has extensively. So many. One of them, Proverbs 18.2, says, A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. You ever know that person that just, you just, they just want to show you how much they know? Where's the heart? Without the heart behind it, you're not going to really receive that. In a different context, or maybe with just a little more application of wisdom, that's, this advice that Eliphaz is giving might actually be helpful. It might actually help Job in this. The problem is that he's trying to apply earthly wisdom, what he knows in his mind. He's trying to apply that to a heavenly problem. Trying to apply earthly wisdom to a heavenly problem. There's so much going on behind the scenes that Eliphaz cannot know. And he's claiming to know all these things. Always need to be careful. The problem is it's just based on a prideful assumption a desperate assumption, if you will. He's, these things that he's assuming have to be true or we have a problem. And he's trying desperately to make them true. Now, the question, hearing all this advice, hearing all this advice, how do you think Job is going to respond to this advice? We're going to find out next week how Job receives this advice. I'll give you a spoiler alert. It's not really good. Eliphaz here has taken on both the the role of judge and the giver of truth or dispenser of wisdom. And again, he's factually correct, but even truth spoken with the wrong heart, wrong timing, wrong motivation can be damaging. Truth and wisdom spoken without one key ingredient will not be received well. What's the key ingredient that's missing through all of this? It's love. It's love. You're elbowing each other because, see, I told you it was love. That's a prideful, no, sorry. Sorry. Notice I wasn't looking at anyone when I pointed. Paul talked about that extensively, that just knowing the truth, just knowing wisdom, just knowing facts, if they're not delivered with truth, they're not going to find a way. In other words, what platform are you standing on when you speak truth? Does that platform say love on it? Or does it say pride? We need to be careful. Paul, again, talking to the Corinthians, told them that unless love was the platform you stand on, your best efforts are going to fall short. Let me read this. Actually, I've got it on screen. 1 Corinthians 13 Verses 1 through 3, it's very well known. If I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and I know all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So he's saying, if I hear from God, he's not even saying if I'm prideful and I just make it up. If I hear from God, if I speak prophecy, if I give everything to the poor, if I do all the right things, I say and do all the right things, but I do it without love, it will come to nothing. That's a harsh lesson to learn. We think that we can just speak truth and it's going to have its effect. If we don't speak it through love, it's going to have a hard time having an effect. Eliphaz, again, he's speaking like somebody who has never experienced this depth of pain. And he's applying what he sees as the cold hard truth. But again, he's using the facts as a bludgeon to just punish Job until Job finally gives in and admits Have you ever said, have you ever made this statement, I don't care if this loses me friends, but, you ever said that? I see that on social media so much more now than I ever have. People just coldly and like flat out just saying, I don't care if this loses me friends, but this is the truth. If you say that, if you make that kind of a statement, you might have more 
in, in common with Eliphaz than you want. You just might. It's not saying you're not right, but the truth delivered with love, that's going to have an effect. That's going to have the effect that Christ wants. Paul said it again. Paul writing to the Galatians, Galatians 4.16. So, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Anybody ever spoken truth and all of a sudden had people unfriend them? Or you've unfriended people because they spoke a truth that was different than yours or maybe had questions? If your answer is yes, then maybe you're missing one of those key three ingredients that makes truth. Facts are important. They need to be delivered with understanding and wisdom. And then that last one, love. You put all those things together and you deliver them with love. They're going to have the effect intended. Warren Wiersbe said this. I have this quote. Truth without love is brutality. And love without truth is hypocrisy. Church, we should never be afraid to speak the truth. Jesus was never afraid to speak the truth. He didn't shrink back, and we are not to shrink back. However, speak it with truth, or with with love. He spoke everything he said. He did it from a loving standpoint. He could say the most harsh words, and they would not be condemning. They would be convicting because he spoke them with love. Everything that Jesus said, the people around him knew that he said it because he loved them. If we're speaking it like that, it's going to have the correct effect. But without it, without love, truth is just brutality. Paul again said it like this in Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. What that means, don't hesitate to speak the truth. Don't hesitate. But remember, truth is so much more than just a cold fact that supports what you want it to say. Then it's just a bludgeon. Speak it with truth. Jesus said this in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Speaking the truth in love is what brings people to the Father. It's that reflection of Christ in us. And if we're to be the reflection of Christ to a world that desperately needs it, our platform, first and foremost, needs to be love. Say nothing without filtering it through love. Eliphaz did not understand that concept. So I'll just leave you with this. Don't be an Eliphaz. You can use that on each other throughout the week. Don't be an Eliphaz. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for your truth. Your truth written, no matter how long ago the words were written, they apply to us today. And so, Father, I just ask that you touch our hearts right now through your Holy Spirit. Speak to us and show us all of the words that were spoken today. All the words that came out of my mouth, Lord, show us what should just fall to the side and what should take root in our hearts. Show us what should be applied to our lives and how to do it. Let your rhema word through the Holy Spirit reign in us today. And Lord, regardless of all that, let people first and foremost see love in our actions. Not pride, not boastfulness, not anger, but let us reflect the love that you have for us, the love that you showed by giving yourself for us, sacrificing yourself for us. Let that be what people see when they encounter us. We want to be used for your purposes, Father. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you're at home and you have your communion supplies, grab them. If you're here in-house, we have them at the table in the back. Let's take a moment and just celebrate communion together. So wherever you are, take the body, whether it's a cracker or a bagel from this morning, whatever you have, it's not important what it is, it's what it represents. 
It represents your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, giving himself on the cross for you, being broken for you, being broken for those who would be a good ambassador of his and for those who wouldn't. But if you accept the body, you are standing alongside Christ and saying, yes, I believe in your message. I believe in you. And I want to be your ambassador to this world. And I accept the salvation and the gift that you offer. And if that's you, take the body. And the blood of Christ, the blood of Christ is what reconciles us to the Father. So we no longer, like Job, have to offer animal sacrifice. Jesus was our lamb. And he gave it all to reconcile us to the Father so that we don't have to stand before him accused by Satan. We have Christ as an intercessor. And through that, through his blood shed on the cross, we are reconciled to God. If you accept that, take the blood. Father, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your wisdom and the things that you do for us every day. And we thank you for Jesus. In your name, amen. Hey, as the worship team plays on, if you're here in-house, we have the crosses. If you have prayer requests that you would like to pin to the cross, you can do that. We have prayer team who will be in the back wearing a lantern. If you need prayer for anything, they're back there. They would love to pray with you. We have the testimony board. If you have something that God has just done in your life that is worthy of worthy of praise, write it on one of those cards and pin it to that board. You don't have to put your name on it, but it's encouraging to look over and see the ways that God is moving amongst his people. So let's take advantage of that as we worship together. Thank you, church.
Oh, how.